0: How we've gotten here is that there is no trust between communities of color and law enforcement. But what I hope is that we are really forcibly refocusing law enforcement away from relying on marijuana um, and its connections to Black criminality to police our communities.
1: You're listening to Thinking Freely with the ACLU of Maryland. The show that talks about what's happening politically in Maryland from the courts to the streets and everywhere in between. I'm your host, Nehemiah Bester. Marijuana. Let's talk about it. In 2022, Maryland voters overwhelmingly decided that it was time for marijuana to be legalized for recreational use. But let's be real, that should have happened years ago. Since 2014, marijuana has been decriminalized in the state for possession of 10 grams or less, specifically black and brown people who were searched at a rate of 2.41 times higher than whites. And that research only came four years after decriminalization. On top of this, marijuana's legalization has opened the door to for-profit businesses with local stores and industries yielding financial gain from the substance. The unfortunate truth of it is, is that there seem to have always been two very different realities of marijuana use. When black and brown people use it, it's criminalized. The very intentional racist war on drugs created by President Nixon was used to target black people specifically. But when white people use it, not only are consequences less severe, it seen more as medicinal and now profitable. This gets into another issue on marijuana reparations for those communities that are owed for their constant persecution and community destruction over a commonly used plant. The ACLU of Maryland acted fast this legislative session to push for legislation that put an end to these outdated laws, including ending stops and searches over the alleged smell of marijuana, which police have long used as a precursor to justify their own violent crimes in communities they're sworn to serve. To help us make sense of all this, we have Michelle Hall, who's an assistant public defender at the Maryland Office of the Public Defender, where she represents clients on appeal and engages in legislative advocacy, as well as Lawrence Grand Prix, the Director of Research for Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, who focuses on police accountability and community-based economic development. Thanks for joining me, you two.
2: Thanks for having
1: me. So Lawrence, I want to start with you. Um, You've done tons of research on community-based development, particularly on drug policy and criminal justice. Uh, So even before Marylanders overwhelmingly voted to legalize recreational marijuana, right? In Maryland, there have been calls for reparations for those most impacted by the dangerous war on drugs. And, you know, we're talking about Black people um, and the communities they reside in. My question to you is, are marijuana reparations possible in our state?
2: That's a good question. and The answer is yes, but I think part of the important thing to understand is the definition of reparations. The difference depends on who you talk to. So um, many people, sorry, on a lot of different definitions of reparations, but at the core of my definition of reparations is I guess I would probably say two things. First, it is not just a recognition of guilt, um, apology really doesn't matter to me, that's just words. These are things that are very important in other forms of definitions of reparations from like the United Nations. Then one of the most important things for me, I would say the first thing is the promise of non-repetition, as in if we recognize there's been a historical harm, we have to build structures of accountability to not have it happen again or not keep doing it. Right. A lot of calls for reparations essentially try to do just funding and don't actually deal with the systemic systems causing the violence so the violence can continue. Um, So I would say the first thing is non-repetition. The second thing is that the people who are grieved by the harm have to choose for themselves the mechanism of redress for the harm. And I think that's critically important because many of the calls for reparation essentially are just giving people money, either cash payments or giving already existing institutions money. And when you think about the war on drugs, part of the research we've done about the war on drugs talks about the hollowing out of community capacity as one of the critical impacts of the war on drugs. So you think about all the people who does want be starting community groups, nonprofits, businesses, they were literally in jail. So what you create when you just see funding as reparations is either cash payments, which are not politically popular, very difficult to logistically do, and when presented, largely end up people buying substance goods or luxury goods that's in that money flows out of the community very quickly, it doesn't build institutional capacity to protect the community, it doesn't build political power long-term. Or if you just see this funding, what it would do is it creates basically the existing institutional apparatuses, what many people call the nonprofit industrial complex, the white savior industrial complex, it's basically just a blank check for them to continue to provide services to the community, which many people deem the services themselves as problematic, racist, reflective of black pathology, community and capacity. So the call for reparations to war drugs, I think maybe because people didn't use the word reparations, but it goes back, you know, decades to at least the 70s when people talked about, you know, the beginning of the heroin epidemic and seeing the joblessness that many black soldiers coming home from Vietnam came home to and saying, you know, this is the beginning of methadone, saying you can't just give us methadone and they know what you're doing to the community can't just give us methadone and ignore what you're doing to the Black Panthers. You can't just give us methadone and ignore the larger systemic reality that drives people to addiction. And now you have visions of reparations that often use things like methadone, expansion as itself reparations. While many of the Black elders in this space, folks like Matulu Shakur, a political prisoner in New York who was recently released after over 40 years of incarceration, he was doing addiction care in his community, specifically questioning methadone and using things like acupuncture, but also more importantly, political conscientization. Through the Black Panthers taking over the Lincoln Detox Clinic, that was their vision of liberatory methodologies. And instead of the public health community supporting that, so reparations frame, the public health community teamed up with the New York Rockefeller Republicans to shut down the clinic that material cooperated in New York. The Panthers and the Young Lords took over this clinic and then public health people assisted the Rockefeller Republicans to shut it down because those folks were against methadone. Methadone was what these people had built their careers off of. So the reality is that we can't allow a nonprofit system, which is largely hostile to the concept that Black people have the ability to solve their own problems. Giving them money cannot be the limit to how we define reparations. So it has to be bottom-up community control. But we've been centering on that here in Baltimore and Maryland.
1: I want to shift gears a, a little bit. So... So he, here's a clip from the ACLU of Maryland's public policy director, Yannette Emanuel, during our 2023 grassroots legislative priorities presentation a few months ago. Uh, she talks about what policy changes are needed to make a difference for racial justice in uh, marijuana legalization.
3: The other bill that we'll be working on this session is also a marijuana-related issue, and that is to eliminate um, criminal penalties for possession with intent to distribute and um, pos- and possessing over the civil use amount, which is 2.5 ounces. Under the current law, possession with intent to distribute and possession of more than a civil use of amount, which is two point five ounces, can still result in a misdemeanor conviction. Such convictions carry a penalty of uh, for um, possession is six months in jail and a thousand dollar fine, and intent to distribute is punishable by three years um, imprisonment and a five thousand dollar fine. Without limiting these penalties, Black people will be vulnerable to existing arrest patterns, where they will continue to be disproportionately targeted by police and saddle criminal penalties despite marijuana legalization. Last year, sensing trends in Maryland circuit courts for marijuana offenses over the last decade was released, and it revealed that nearly 50% of people charged with uh, felony or misdemeanor offenses, um, the char- that charge was their first entanglement with the criminal legal system, meaning that they didn't have any prior um, records, and the, over- and the overwhelming majority of these folks were Black. Um, additionally, we've seen through every um, step uh, of both decriminalization in Maryland and legalization nationwide that racial disparities in arrests and enforcement will persist through every outlet possible. Thus, without eliminating these penalties, we will only have partial legalization and have made no progress in accomplishing the goal of racial justice and stopping these racist enforce, uh, enforcement of our marijuana laws, um, which is why the members of the MGA said that they were prioritizing um, legalizing Maryland to begin with. Um, so in 2023, the ACLU, Leaders of the Struggle, Struggle, uh, Office of the Public Defender, and, uh, and our allies will work on a bill to, pa- to pass a bill that eliminates these penalties and designates possession of more than the civil use amount and possession with intent to distribute subject to citations and civil fines rather than a criminal conviction.
1: given, given that clip, you know even even though criminalization for the recreational use of marijuana is ending, there are still seem to be criminal penalties for possession over the civil use amount, um, civil use limit and possession with intent to distribute. So my question is, what's the hope for next session? to ensure that we eliminate criminal penalties for marijuana?
0: Well, I certainly hope um, that our sponsors from this past year, Delegate Davis and uh, Senator Carter, as Yannette had mentioned in the clip, um, will reintroduce their bills that would have eliminated the criminal penalties um, for possession over the civil use amount and possession with intent to distribute. And, you know, really for us, this is a matter of fundamental fairness, right? If we have something um, that is legal, it's legal to go into the store and purchase this product, then it should not continue to be subject to criminal penalties for engaging in the cannabis market, even if it may be outside of what is in the legalized scheme. The legislature over the past couple of years has started doing a racial equity impact note, which talks about the uh, race-based impacts of different pieces of legisl- legislative and bills. Um, And the note for uh, this bill this past session made really clear that although national data shows that the lifetime uh, cannabis use of Black people is actually less than their white counterparts, Black people are disproportionately arrested and convicted of cannabis crimes. And that disparity is also true in Maryland. In Maryland, um, we have a 29 percent, Black people are 29 percent of the state's population, but 59 percent of the cannabis possession arrests. And so Reducing the penalties related to possession and possession with intent to distribute cannabis really balances, I think, the state's interest in regulating the cannabis marketplace, making sure that people are engaging in the legal marketplace while not criminalizing people for engaging outside of that marketplace. And ultimately, You know, we have something that it's in the state's interest to bring a cannabis marketplace here, right, because it's an economic boon. But with that, we can't continue to have the disparate surveillance enforcement and arrests in Black communities for cannabis use. And one thing that, you know, I think some people would say, well, if people are possessing you know, the personal use amount or the legal amount, then this is not a problem. Ultimately, I think there are incentives for police and law enforcement to characterize things that are part of just personal use of cannabis as possession with intent to distribute, right? And so if you and some of the things that are in HB 1071, which I know we'll talk about shortly, um, are meant to get at that, right? So it used to be that if an officer saw you in possession of a drug um, and having cash, that um, therefore you're engaged in possession with intent to distribute because cash and proximity to a drug necessarily means that you're selling drugs. i not taking into account that large parts of our communities, right, are not necessarily using banks, are going to cash checking storefronts and getting, getting cash in that type of way. And if you want to go and purchase cannabis with cash, that should not all of a sudden have you exposed to being charged with possession with intent to distribute. And so there are, car- uh, there are incentives um, in order to, again, be able to surveil, enforce, and arrest individuals in Black communities to characterize things um, that in White communities I think would very easily be seen as part of legal cannabis use, and all of a sudden that as is um seen as possession with intent to distribute and so without coming back and being sure to eliminate uh criminal penalties for cannabis I think that's a risk that is still going to exist and so hopefully um, we'll be able to next session still work on that piece
1: so I wanna I want to switch really quickly to you Lauren so given that what um, Michelle was just describing you know especially about the community aspect of that on the topic of local campaigns you know, Grassroots organizations and in- and funding. What are the key components of accountable community control plans for the marijuana repair funds? Like how, and, and how can people get involved and be a part of making this happen?
2: That's a really good question. So I've been studying this issue since 2014. And I started studying it because it was clear to me that new money is a political opportunity to fund grassroots organizations and so part of the reason i was able to do that is because like our organization is not a nonprofit. so many foundations did not want to give can- money for people to advocate on cannabis bills because it's still federally illegal so after the bill passes they'll give some people money to do the social justice implementation of the bill, but actually crafting the bill, writing the policies, very few foundations had the appetite for that. So, all over the country, these cannabis reinvestment provisions passed without the typical cadre of social justice grassroots organizations that foundations funded being present. And many of those examples vary in their success, but many of them share certain characteristics that we felt. Delineating them and preventing them from being considered reparations that we tried to correct here in Maryland, so one of which is that they were very much centrally controlled. This is part of the new uh, technocratic top-down vision of social justice that we need to have the money centralized in state capitals where academics and nonprofit people can choose where the money goes, because that's the general distrust of local decision makers and people on the ground because they're not seen as enlightened, they're not seen as intelligent. And In our experience looking at examples like Illinois was really just the exact opposite where they had a very highly resourced fund. So they put uh, 30% of the tax revenue there, but. The fund was largely staffed for political appointees and certain hand-selected representatives of essentially a nonprofit industrial complex. And this produced results where people who were already resourced nonprofits got a majority of the money in some black churches, right? And that's, that's not even necessarily bad. But that's not reparation for the war on drugs. Reparation for the war on drugs means it's the type of people who may have gone to jail for cannabis possession or attempt to distribute. Are going to be preferred in the decision making process when these grants go out. But we got in the north the opposite. Well, you need to have three years of audited financial statements. You need to have evaluations for your programs, claiming you're using evidence based best practices. All of these seemingly race neutral conceptual criteria on who gets money that they get weaponized against grassroots organizations on the ground. So, what we're doing here in Maryland is that we're having the pot of money, which is 35%, be divvied up in proportion to. By locality and have the money be given to localities and not centralized in the state governments. This is basically theorized that, given the demographics of how people get elected in different state legislatures, you have more juice with your local elected official than with your state elected official. Most people can't get to the state capital, most people have never been to Annapolis. Uh, the city council races are decided by a few thousand votes, or a few hundred votes rather than a few thousand votes. The amount of money that goes into these races are different. And people just know these people. Even if they don't like them, they know them. They know what they are. They know where they can get to them. They know people that know these people. And it's just, there are 15 of them in the city council rather than just like the one or two, three people in your district. So you just have the ability to magnify your social capital locally to influence local politics differently than state politics. So there's going to be a proportional divvying up of the funds, and the funds will be given to localities. The localities then must pass an ordinance by the county council or city council that dictates how the funds will be used to enumerate the harms of the war on drugs within certain guide rails. So it can't go to policing. It can't go to replace already allocated um, things in the budget, so you can't kind of play budgeting shell games so you basically use it to fill gaps in your existing budget. And importantly, it doesn't just go to the executive, because the other criticism we saw is that many times the executive is seen as the safe place to put money. We have these things in Maryland called local management boards, and they actually take a large chunk of state, federal, and foundation money given to localities, and these are oftentimes led by political appointees of the executive. So the idea that we're doing here in Baltimore City that we want to replicate statewide is we're doing a reparations commission. The reparations commission will have one representative from every city council district, and the reparations commission will be tasked with studying the longitudinal impact of the war on drugs in Baltimore City and producing recommendations for what should be funded to repair that harm. So within the framework of the policy, what folks need to do is they need to talk to whoever it is at the local level in city governance or county governance that they have a connection to and tells them that they need to pass an ordinance to get this money once it starts flowing in July, 2024. And we need to be part of that process because whoever holds that money you need to be very clear what the decision-making criteria need to be. And so we've done things in Baltimore that say things like, you should not have to have a 501c3 status already. That's very prohibitive. You should not need to have you know the audited statements and um, the executive capacity. We need to be open to fiscal sponsorship. We need to have money allocated to incubate um, uh, applicants. Right. Taking public money is very difficult. There's lots of strings attached to it. So if you want grassroots people to receive the money, they have to be given incubation and technical support to learn how to take this money. And if you're not doing those things, you're not doing a model that we think reflects reparations. So, there's no, so whatever people want to see in the bill, you have an opportunity to push locally in Maryland. To have your locality implement a process that reflects what you think needs to happen, and that would not necessarily be the case if the money was stuck in Annapolis.
1: I want to quickly go to you, Michelle. Um, similarly, on that same topic, but earlier you briefly mentioned HB ten seventy one. You know, and that just passed. Just it passed just in time in, in the legislative session. Why was it so critical that Maryland passed this bill to end police stops and searches? over the alleged smell of marijuana if legalization was already on its way?
0: Yeah. So under um, the Fourth Amendment, right, that is what regulates and that body of case law regulates when police can conduct a stop or a search. And under Maryland cases, there had been a a path created in the cases that have come out since 2014 when marijuana was um, first decriminalized. That basically said um, the odor of marijuana alone could be enough for um, a stop. So a stop of a, of a person um, and a search of a vehicle as long as uh, there were any marijuana related crimes. And because um, odor, because there were still marijuana related crimes on the books. Um, and at the time that the most recent case um, came out uh, last June in Ray D.D. came out um Marijuana was still contraband, um, its odor alone could be indicative of contraband or perhaps a crime. Now, as we talked about earlier, right? um, we still have marijuana related crimes on the books, possessing more than the civil use amount, um, possession with intent to distribute. And so even when marijuana was legalized, there was still a path for courts to be able to say, well, odor of marijuana can be indicative of a crime because we still have possession with intent to distribute and we still have possession over the civil use amount is a crime. Um, So legalization alone did not fix this. And Quite frankly, the way that so many of our clients come into contact with the system is because of the odor or the alleged odor of marijuana. You know, unlike other things, body cams, um, for better or worse, have changed a lot of things about policing. I mean, one thing is that we have a check of being able to say, did this uh, series of events happen the way that you said that it happened? There is no way, though, to verify or not if police smelled the odor of marijuana. And so we regularly have police saying, oh, during the course of a traffic stop, I came up to the window and I smelled the odor of marijuana and I use that as the basis to search a car. Maybe they find nothing. Maybe they find a handgun. Maybe they find something else. I mean, all that evidence is automatically admissible. Maybe, And a lot of times they have not found any marijuana or they've maybe found a small, small roach. Um, which I think there's a question of whether or not that is emitting any type of odor of marijuana, right? So without this bill, we would have created a situation where people can go engage um, in this legal marketplace that we put a lot of time and energy into setting up and they can go to the dispensary, they can buy weed, they can leave the store, they can have um, cannabis in their car and then they can be stopped for uh, rolling a stop sign, they can be stopped for failing to put on a turn signal and the police can come up And maybe they do smell marijuana, or maybe they don't, but they just saw them leave the dispensary so they know they have marijuana in the car and say, well, now I want to search your car because of the odor of marijuana. And there would be nothing that anyone would be able to do to challenge that because that would likely continue to be seen as a legal um, stop or search. And so um, this bill was important to put a stop to that and put a stop to that at the same time, um, you know, that marijuana was going to be legalized. So. You know, I think the first thing is there's an open question of whether or not the courts were going to ultimately conclude um and you know, this was a lot of the pushback we got from the opposition is that um the courts will ultimately decide this issue. and, you know, it would they are going to say that it's not reasonable to do that anymore. Maybe they would, but maybe they wouldn't because of, again, that path that I explained that the case law took. But the other thing is that on July first, people are going to be able to legally possess marijuana. It takes a very long time for a case to wind its way through the courts. In Ray DD, which was um, the most recent case um, that was litigated on the odor of marijuana and was my case from the trial courts through all of the appeals, that case began in November of 2019. And we didn't get an opinion from the Supreme Court of Maryland until June 2022. So, you know, if we were to leave this to the courts, we could be talking about two and a half or three years until um, we get a final conclusion of whether or not um, conducting stops and searches based on the odor of marijuana alone um, was something that would still be permitted in the era of legalization. And in the meantime, people would continue to be stopped and searched. And that's the, that is the conduct that we want to um, prohibit. Um, And mainly that's because there is a risk. Anytime we're engaging with law enforcement, there is a risk. There is a risk, um, particularly for people of color. And we don't have to go into depth about the many, many encounters that have happened right in the course of a traffic stop that has escalated unnecessarily and someone has ended up seriously injured or killed. And, you know, I think the most um, prescient thing that happened um, during the course of this legislative session was On the day that we had our final hearing on HB 1071 was the day that the the DeMonte Ward-Blake excessive force lawsuit was settled uh, with Prince George's County. And DeMonte Ward-Blake was a black man who in the course of a traffic stop um, was paralyzed by law enforcement. And the reason, one of the reasons that that traffic stop escalated was because of the alleged odor of marijuana. And so um, on the same day that we had that hearing Prince George's County settled that excessive force lawsuit with Demonte Ward Blake's family for 7.5 million dollars, and so we have um, a county admitting to liability, right, for harming this black man for in a traffic stop that escalated over the odor of marijuana. And we're talking about should the police, until someone else steps in and says something, still be able to stop people and search them based on the odor of marijuana? I mean, imagine the conflict. There's already conflict that happens right now. With people saying you can't, you can't search me. It doesn't make any sense that we have something that uh, I can, I can smoke. Right? We have medical marijuana. We have, at least right now, there's you know civil penalties. in July, um, there aren't going to be for under the personal use amount. You're telling me that I can have this, but then you can use that to search my car. And people all the time are saying that isn't right because it doesn't make any sense. Now imagine the number of incidents and escalations that would happen if we left that paradigm in place for legalization. You know, we don't want, no one should suffer what Demonte Ward-Blake and his family had to suffer. Um, and so a large part of this is making sure if we're going to, you know, take this step and the voters took the step um, to say, yes, we want legal marijuana, then that means that everyone needs to be able to engage in that marketplace and have that product without being at risk of being brutalized by the police. And without, and not even stepping that far, right without being at risk of your rights of privacy being intruded upon
1: right and actually that's a that's an excellent point that you made because i was I was thinking about that and wondering you know because like when when those stops occur like it's almost like you are literally but also metaphorically opening the door for um higher risk and so um I want to end with this with this final question to the both of you uh Lawrence, I can start with you when it when it comes to marijuana legalization, we know it it isn't just about legal justice, right? It's about racial justice, like we just talked about. What would a racial justice-centered marijuana model look like?
2: Um, so answering this question over the years, what I've typically said is that it's a three-legged stool. I think one of which is resentencing and expungement and the criminal justice side. So obviously very few people are actually in jail for pure cannabis possession or really just pure possession of any drug especially in Maryland we charge in units and if one so you get charged with possession of drugs also might be charged with resisting arrest carrying a firearm carrying paraphernalia assaulting an officer and if one thing in that unit is non expungible then the entire unit is non expungible so we've had multiple fights over the so called unit rule and expungement in Maryland. And in fact, that's been an incredible frustration with some of the criminal justice advocates with the cannabis people, because the cannabis advocates, not understanding Maryland, working off of models in other states, will offer pretty banal, pretty weak expungement uh, bills around cannabis. And then they'll pass to great fanfare, not realizing that for the mass majority of people, they're completely useless. Right. So the idea is to not just have pro forma cannabis possession expungement and resentencing, because almost no one's in jail for just possessing cannabis, but to actually deal with larger questions of if I had to carry a weapon to protect myself in my family, you know, contracts are not enforceable by the courts in the street gang. And if you don't pay back the person giving you drugs, you could literally die. So th- it raises complicated questions. And these social justice advocates don't want to have because we like the perfect victim of the nonviolent drug possession offender. But we in Maryland have had conversations about having resentencing hearings for people who not only have complex units of charges, including cannabis possession and intent to distribute, but also when you have cannabis possession on your jacket, you may have in the future been charged with another unrelated crime, but the previous possession for cannabis may have been an escalator to give you a higher sentence for that future crime you committed which isn't fair if we've now deemed cannabis to no longer be illegal. So these retention hearings are very important, but they're very difficult and logistically time consuming. So having conversations now, which has not been on the table because we had a Republican governor about potential um, clemency and gubernatorial pardons is also on the table. The second leg of the stool is the business side. Um, the business side, is very complicated. We don't have time to get into it, but the idea obviously is that for folks to want to engage in the cannabis economy, folks who have a so-called legacy economy who have been in the street game for years, maybe folks who've been growers who have particular strains or essentially intellectual property that they've branded over years. Are they gonna be able to brought into the economy through a collaborative mechanism or been completely criminalized or be exploited in terms of you know people buying that brand name, people buying that intellectual property, using them as spokespeople, but essentially giving them pennies while these big multi-state operators make millions. There's no simple, easy way to do that, given that the Supreme Court is probably going to come down even harder on race specific policy um, in a few weeks now <laughs> when they release that decision. But we're looking at a variety of mechanisms to ensure minority participation. And the last leg, like, in my mind, is the community reinvestment reparations. Because the point is that not everybody wants to sell cannabis legally, not everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. So, for the variety of people, and not everybody who was impacted by cannabis prohibition went to jail. This impacts on entire communities. When someone who was, goes to jail for cannabis possession or intent to distribute, they were a mother, a brother, a sister, a cousin, a father, paying bills, buying diapers, paying rent. So the entire community was destabilized by the hyper, targeted hyper-incarceration produced by the war on drugs. So you have to invest holistically in the entire community. We, we have a lot of liberal individualism in terms of how people conceptualize reparations. If you went to jail, you should get a check. That's not, for example, an African way of conceptualizing uh, community as the central political unit. And so the idea of reparations for me is that it has to function at a community holistic level and be able to employ people who maybe don't want to sell drugs. Maybe they want to run a youth-based nonprofit. Maybe they want to do a business entirely unrelated to cannabis. You need unrestricted funds to be able to fund those dreams that community has. And we typically get told we don't have any money, but now we do because it's cannabis legalization tax revenue. So the idea is to be able to invest holistically and not have the kind of re bureaucracy that typically hamstrings these funds when they come from a federal level related to other things. It's definitely not a perfect vehicle because state money can be very difficult to utilize, but it opens up possibilities that would otherwise be off the table because of the ways in which money is typically funneled very narrowly into programming and very narrowly into grants and very narrowly into very specific places. You have to have a whole more holistic criteria to widen the aperture of what's able to be funded and help people access those funds. Would that be the reparations moment?
1: Same question to you, Michelle. What would a racial justice center marijuana model look like in your opinion?
0: So, I think throughout uh, this incremental legalization journey here in Maryland, one of the things we've continually talked about is how this is meant to start to ameliorate the war on drugs, the disparate enforcement in communities of color, and meant to um, refocus the police away from enforcing low-level marijuana laws um, to focusing more on more um, violent crime and serious crime that is impacting our communities. Um, One of the things that Yannette would constantly say throughout the hearings, um, this session is that, you know, relying on odor alone is incentivizing lazy policing and lazy law enforcement because being able to use um, the alleged odor of marijuana as like a blank check, and that's how I started talking about it towards the end, right, is that really this um, was a blank check to be able to stop people, harass people, search their cars, um, you know, question them and those types of things, right? Um, And so what I really hope that in what we have started to do, and there's still more work to be done. Um, but I hope that what we've made clear through passing these bills this session is that we don't want law enforcement to rely on low hanging fruit. Um, I think relying on marijuana is another iteration of broken windows policing, right? And saying that if you're um, getting at these um, low level crimes that are related to marijuana, or where the investigation starts based on marijuana, maybe you are finding something more serious like a gun who, as like Lawrence was saying, right. Sometimes I have a gun because my community is unsafe um, and I don't trust law enforcement to protect me. And therefore I have a gun, but I am not using it in in any type of violent crime or I'm not using it. um, I'm not going out and robbing people and something like that, but I'm just driving around and possessing a gun, which, you know, in some communities would be seen as your second amendment, right. And in communities of color is seen as you need to be caged. Right. Um, And so I want us to remove the focus from marijuana and say how, if we're going to continue to have this model of law enforcement and policing that we have, um, how do we use that to actually get at and focus on um, violent crime and the roots of violent crime that is causing harm in our communities? Because whenever you stop someone based on the odor of marijuana, and you frisk them and maybe you find nothing or maybe you find something, what you are um, engendering is a feeling of unfairness um, and a feeling of like, they're just messing with me just to mess with me. And most of the time it is. Um, And therefore, when something more serious happens, I'm not going to cooperate with you and work with you because you're the same person that was just harassing me off of the odor of marijuana last week or is lying and saying that you smelled marijuana when you know that you didn't. And so how we've gotten here is that there is no trust between communities of color and law enforcement. And it's a shame that we have had to forcibly remove these low-hanging fruit tools that law enforcement relies on to say, no, you need to do something something different. Um, and I'm not saying that I think policing is going to save us or anything else. Um, but what I hope is that we are really forcibly refocusing law enforcement away from relying on marijuana um, and its connections to Black criminality to police our communities and are hopefully moving towards a model where we are actually investigating and engaging at solving the real roots of violence in our communities. And that's the thing that will be helpful. So I guess the real answer is that I think the racial justice centered marijuana model is like removing marijuana from any type of justice. And um, I will be very glad when I see a lot less cases where marijuana is playing any type of role. Um, And I think every time I see those cases now, I roll my eyes because I know, and I would always say, and I still continue to say, right, I started my career as a trial attorney in Prince George's County, and I never saw a marijuana case at a university of Maryland. But don't tell me that they're so don't tell me that they're not smoking weed there right it's because of where law enforcement is choosing to um put those resources and I hope that now that we're saying this is this is not a priority and in fact it's not even a crime um, that law enforcement does something different and marijuana is removed from this model of policing in our communities
1: right it, it doesn't seem like that should be a priority for the state of Maryland at all so hopefully we're headed in that direction, um, in the next year, in the next couple of years. But I want to thank you so much for your perspectives. Um, it's it's so well needed during this time, and I appreciate all the work that you all do. So thank you.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you, and thank you for having us.
1: Thanks for joining us on this episode of Thinking Freely. If you like this conversation, please feel free to leave a like, comment and share to your networks. And lastly, don't forget to subscribe to Thinking Freely wherever you get your podcasts. This show was recorded on Piscataway land. I'm my Bester, the host and producer of Thinking Freely. See you next time.